Welcome back to 10,000 No's. We are sporadically re-releasing some of our past episodes. Today's guest was one of the chosen ones. Because these episodes are older, please forgive any out-of-date references. These re-releases have been chosen because they are either some of our most heavily downloaded episodes, relevant to some current event, or just a conversation with someone we deem to be a badass that we felt should be reintroduced to our newer listeners so that their pearls of wisdom are not buried forever. Either way, we hope you enjoy. Here it is. So I booked my own flight from Atlanta to New York, put myself up in a hotel for two days, and literally just like went over it, went over it, went over it, went over it. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's, and thank you for being here yet again. Last week's episode with Jake Thompson was awesome, but we are shifting gears back to another thespian after my recent conversation with Julie Benz by sitting down with actor Mark O'Brien. If you've been watching City on a Hill this year on Showtime, there's no doubt you've been riveted by his portrayal of Jimmy Ryan, the slippery brother to Jonathan Tucker's Frankie Ryan. It's such a great performance because Mark takes a character who has some extremely self-serving traits and he's made him so compelling to watch because we don't know what he's going to do next. And at the same time, he's made him vulnerable and charming. It's just excellent work. But what you're going to know an hour from now is that not unlike every other guest on 10,000 knows the quality of his work is the result of yes, raw talent, but maybe more so just sheer will passion, and tenacity. A word of warning, and I said it to his face, so I'm not talking out of school here. If you're an actor, be warned. The first few minutes, Mark's telling me a story. It's very apparent that this guy has worked a lot on very good projects with very big talents. And it's going to be easy, if you're an actor particularly, to say to yourself, oh, come on, is this guy really going to try to convince us he's had a lot of no's? But just stick around. I was blown away by his dedication, his faith, his ability to follow his bliss in the face of bleak odds and no connections early on. If you don't love this guy by the end, I can't be friends with you. A few of his accomplishments, I'm going to blow through them and paraphrase, but you'll get the gist. He's been a series regular on AMC's critically acclaimed Halt and Catch Fire, Amazon's The Last Tycoon, did six years prior to moving to the U.S. in his native Canada on the CBC series Republic of Doyle, for which he was nominated for two Canadian Comedy Awards for Best Actor in a Television Series, as well as a nomination for Best Director of a Television Series. They let him behind the camera because he's also an award winning filmmaker for several short films he's written, directed, produced, edited, and starred in. Yes, I get it. He sounds annoying at this point. You just got to trust me here. He's also starred 
in Denis Villeneuve's Arrival, which garnered eight Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, The Front Runner, opposite Hugh Jackman, directed by Jason Reitman, Noah Baumbach's next untitled project, opposite Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, due out in late 2019. The list goes on, but we're just going to link to his IMDb page in the show notes. The overall gist is that he works like a madman. But what I'm excited for you to hear is the wisdom and experience and the lessons that we can all learn from the journey he took from the tiny town of paradise in Newfoundland all the way to Hollywood. Here he is, Mark O'Brien. I would like to start with City on a Hill because my my real question as I watch you just having so much fun, it, it seems apparent to me you're having so much fun. Yeah. How aware were you that this is just such a great role. I mean, it's, there are, everybody on the show is great. Yeah. Bacon's role is amazing and he's amazing in it. And I think you as Jimmy, it's just like, it's a flashy, like you get to do so much. Yeah. Were you aware of that when you got it? Immediately. Like, and that's rare. You you know what it's like? It's like, you don't know what something's going to turn into. And it's the craziest story. So I was doing a show called The Last Tycoon, which was not long after Paradise Pictures. My wife was on a pilot with you, which you were great in. Thank you. You were really, really great in that. I saw it. I thought that whole show was great. And Rick Moraghi is a good friend of ours since then. It was so so disappointing. It was so disappointing. It was a great show. So I'm going to give you the long version of the story and how kind of crazy it is. And how, especially given the nature of this podcast, of how crazy when you're just so determined and I literally willed something to happen, I think. (laughs) Like, it was insane. So I was doing Halt and Catch Fire. I did season two, which was, I booked that show 10 days after I got to Los Angeles. Insane from Canada. So oh, it was people crazy. People are going to hate you when they Yeah, hear this. <laughs> right? But there's a lot of misery before that and after that. But <laughs> we'll get into the misery. Especially before that. There's a lot. By the way, so did your wife. Georgina booked the, yeah. the Paradise Pictures like, right when after. she got there. Yeah. So it was really weird. Now, there was a lot of work in Canada. And for me, Newfoundland, where I'm from originally before that. And there was a lot of rejection and just not working at all. And then it was like, I'm going to go to LA and I'm just going to make it happen. And I was so determined. And then I got this part, which, you know, we can talk about that after, but so I do it. And then I, I signed an option for Halt and Catch Fire. And in season two, which was my first season, I was a regular. I was in every episode. I was in it a lot. And then at the end of the season, all the characters move from Dallas on the show to San Francisco. And I was in the white draft. I'm there. I'm with them because I'm with uh, Mackenzie Davis is my love interest on it and, and we're together. And then she offers me this thing to go with them. And I'm there in the blue or the pink. I'm not there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK, so I'm not going to be on that show again in the future. And it stayed that way. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so. And then um, and then so the season finished. and It was great. It was great. I talked to the creators, became good friends with them. And it was all smooth and cool and creative decision that I respect. And I actually agree with them. I was like, totally you shouldn't go on the plane. Then it gets picked up for season three. Then I'm like, maybe my option is going to be picked up. Don't know. My option's not picked up. And I was like, oh, that sucks. This is a great show. And then I get a call from Sharon Pioli. Or my, my agent called from Sharon Bialy, 
And Billy Ray wants to, I'm going to meet Billy Ray for his show, The Last Tycoon, which is set in 40s Hollywood. Now, the same day, 30s Hollywood, the same day that that happened was the day after I found out about Halt and Catch Fire. The next day, I'm like, oh, my God, this is a cool thing. Billy Ray, big fan, wrote Captain Phillips, Shattered Glass. Georgina finds out the Paradise Pictures is not going. And which was set in 1940s Hollywood. This is 19, and we were like, this is good, I guess. Yeah. I get the part. Uh, I did, the show gets picked up. It goes pretty well. Like, my part's not quite as big as I thought, but I really liked working with Billy a lot. And, we, and Chris Kaiser, who created the show, they kind of did it all together. Formed a really good relationship. Do the series. That series is not as well received as we thought it was going to be, which happens. And it's on Amazon. This is like, they only really had Transparent. This is 2017 when it premiered. So it's like they weren't really even what they are now already. I know that's only two years ago. So I do the show and then it's like, it's just this weird series of events. So then I'm doing the show and I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I did think I was going to be on this show more, to be honest. I really believed that. And I was like, I'm kind of like this weird side plot that at one point I didn't do any ADR for the whole series. And I thought my whole, I was like, maybe I'm cut. Maybe I'm cut from the whole show. Yeah. It was super weird about it. And then I'm out to dinner with a friend of mine. He's an actor named Amel Amin. I did a movie with him a few years ago. He's a British actor, great guy. And we're sitting there and he's like, I'm auditioning for... Aldous Hodge's role. I'm auditioning for this role in Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's new show. And he's like, there's a role in there that you were tailor-made for. And I was like, man, like I'm a huge Affleck and Damon fan and Showtime. And I was just like, oh my God, man, that would be like such a cool thing. Kevin Bacon's not attached yet. So, but it was still like super enticing. So I'm like, I'm, I'm still on Last Tycoon. Like, I don't know if it's going to get picked up. And, I, and you know, when the ruse aren't great for a first season, you're like, do is it? Do I want to do a second season? Like, is it going to get better? Is this, you know what I mean? Who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Then, uh, so then, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure what's going to happen. Then Last Tycoon is canceled. So the first thing I do is I'm like, what's going on with that City on a Hill show? And they're like, well, it's, they already have their people, I think. And they're going to shoot in September. And I started shooting The Front Runner which was the Jason Reitman movie with Hugh Jackman, the Gary Hart uh, political movie. And they were like, and you're not available anyway because you're shooting that for like seven weeks. And I was like, oh shit, man. Like, damn, like I I gotta be on the show, but I guess it's gone. A few weeks go by and then they're like, you know, they pushed it a few weeks. I think the timing might work out. And I was like, really? And then it turns out, it was like, oh, the timing's actually not gonna work out. Then another week or so later, they're like, actually the timing will work out, but they have their three people. So I was like, oh, for, for for Jimmy, for my role that I ended up getting. And I was like, oh, man, like, this sucks. This is never going to happen. Like, it just keeps disappointing me along the way. Judy Henderson is casting out of New York. I had by chance met Judy five months earlier. I was on the jury for Tribeca Film Festival. And my agent set up a general with Judy Henderson just while I was there. Only person I met while I was there. Never met her before. Didn't know who she was. Met her. She's a really sweet woman. She's casting the show. I didn't even know that up to this point. And she's like, well, I really like Mark. He can send a tape. And she wasn't casting initially. It was someone else because it was Gavin O'Connor was going to direct. Yeah. And I think it was Wendy O'Brien was going to cast. And then Michael Cuesta came in to direct. And then he he and Judy had worked together a long time. That's common with casting directors and their directors. They work yeah. together. So they happened to switch. And then Judy was like, they already have their three. But that was a bleed over from before. So it happened to happen that Judy took over and I just met her and she's like, fine. You know, when that happens, I'm like, yeah. fine, they can send a tape. I like them. She sends it. I send the tape later that day. I get a thing like Questa loved it. Like everyone, like I was like, holy crap. Then they're like, I'm still in Atlanta shooting the front runner when I sent the tape. 
And they're like, Cuesta is going from, who ended up directing the pilot, he's going from LA to New York, but I was going back to LA. And they were like, you can Skype with him. I was like, no. So I booked my own flight from Atlanta to New York, put myself up in a hotel for two days and literally just like went over it, went over it, went over it, went over it. And then went in Judy's basement and that was my screen test. Then they decided it was a screen test after, after. I booked the flight and everything. They were like, yeah. oh, this can be the screen test. And then got it. And I, I swear to God. Just so uh, people know, usually, you know, you're paid to go there yes. to screen test. But you, okay, Yeah, and you're on. given well in advance. It's go. like you'll be screen yeah. testing in like a week. Yeah. And so this was like, oh, we'll call it the screen test. So it all happened really fast. And then I got it. And I it wasn't just like, oh, those series of events. Like, honestly, like, I wanted a role like this for as long as I can remember, like specifically like this, that I couldn't really articulate into words. Like I want to play a Boston criminal who's hooked on drugs. It's like, it wasn't like that. It was like the vibe of this person. I know I can do this and I know it doesn't look like something I've done before. So I want to do it so bad and I've never had the opportunity and it was kind of in my head. And then when that happened, I was like, I just, I need this to happen. I'm just going to make this happen. And I'm not saying I moved all those pieces around yeah, in the yeah. universe, but I was never more determined for anything. And I was just, and it was the most confident I ever felt because not like I'm the best actor for this and no one's going to do this better. It was just like, I just know that I can do this role yeah. well. Like I couldn't play Jonathan Tucker's role. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, I, I could to a greater or lesser degree, but not as good as he can, not as yeah. good as a lot of other people could. Yeah. But this one, I just knew it. And it was this weird thing. Yeah. There's so many lessons in there. I won't, I won't go into them now because <laughs> I could do that in like the takeaways at the end, but yeah. there's so many lessons in yeah. that story. And it's also like, you know, someone could be listening and be like, God, this guy is like, uh, he works all the time. What's the problem? You know, it's like that, that's the funny thing is like when, when I look at what you've done, um, and you had sent me an email saying, like, I've definitely had my 10,000 no's. Yeah. And other people could look at you, you know, tons of actors could look at you and be like, oh, my God, he's just he's he's blessed with this incredible career. Even in that, there are so many no's that get you there. And we'll, yes. and we'll get into that. hundred percent. And if it wasn't for all the no's I had, I wouldn't have been so dogged in that. I wouldn't have been so determined that Tribeca Film Festival I got that opportunity. My publicist knew someone and they worked out because they knew I'm a big film buff and I'd like to go. I paid to be there. I flew myself there, put myself in a hotel for four days, even for that. And I was like, I don't know any New York casting. That was in the back of my mind. And I went there too. And yeah. that's only because I've been told no so many times. Yeah. That well, you're even like, the fact I that have to made, do this. Well, that's another thing I didn't know before, you know, researching for this interview your filmmaking past. Yeah. And that's something that they want you on the jury. Yeah. You know, you're, you're on the jury judging films because you're a filmmaker and you've won awards for your yeah. shorts and, and for screenplays. So that's another example of where your past hustle, you know, paid off. It all comes to it. And that's why it's like, I think sometimes I, for me, if things were coming easily to me, I, I know that I wouldn't have that determination because you wouldn't worry about it. It'd be like, why am I going to worry about it? I'll just get another one. And it's like, I don't ever feel like I'm going to get another one. <laughs> like, it's yeah. like, I'm going to have to scrape and claw. And sometimes I think that gets to me too much. And I let myself get frustrated because I'm scraping and clawing, but I can't help but scrape and claw because I don't think anyone's going to hand me anything. Yeah. So get into that a little bit, the difference on this, on this job, because it, it really is like you get the opportunity uh, and I really didn't know uh, until recently that you had comedy in your background, 
but it it's it comes across even though this is such a a gritty world and and you know your character is is down and out in in so many ways but you also have managed to make him funny so he's yeah. he's got all these different colors that you've infused into him um, but like, just, just, you know, walk us through a little bit of the experience of, of shooting it. We don't have to go through. For sure. No, I, I, I think it's like, I, I always like performances and, and try and do this where there's just layers. There's something else kind of going on where there's a curiosity of that character. I honestly, like it goes back to, I watch a lot of movies. I watch a movie every day. I watched a movie this morning. Um, like I get up early to do that and I, because I just love it, but I also, I think you can learn a lot from performances without not necessarily stealing. It's an idea. For example, like Julianne Moore in The Hours, I always thought that was such an interesting performance because she left some mystery to that character. And it's such a and it's such a a different performance because I don't know what the, her character is really thinking and I don't know what she's going to do next. And I think for this, for Jimmy on City on a Hill, there's that kind of idea that I'm like, I don't know what he's going to do next. So he's liable to laugh at something. There's a scene in the series, I'm not going to say what episode, but there's a scene where I'm in a fight with some people and I don't know how it's cut together. But I said to the director, and I told Chuck McLean, the creator on set, who agreed completely, and this comes from his ideas generally anyway, that I was like, I think I would laugh in this situation (laughs) because I'm getting sort of a high out of it. I don't think it should be a big moment. So with Jimmy, I'm like, my biggest thing going in was like, you could play this really one way that works. And I think a, like a lot of actors and a lot of directors and a lot of writers, some do this all the time where it's just like, you just do it one way and it just works. And it's like, yep, yeah, it tells the story. But I always think if there's something more interesting you can do, and you're at the mercy of the editor anyway, but if there's something more interesting you can do to add just some life to them and some character. So for me with Jimmy, it was like, I could play this just as a guy who's strung out and he's just a problem all the time. But I was like, but that's not how people aren't one way. So I was like, I really think there should be other shades of him that are constantly there. And one of them for me was this guy's clearly very like emotional and boisterous and has a lot of backbone and everything. So therefore, his other emotions will be just as easily accessible, I think. I think he'd be just as quick to laugh and make a joke and take the piss out of someone. And he'd be just as quick to break down crying in front of his brother in a grocery store. Like, because they're all so available, all of his emotions. And I was like, I think that's the more interesting twist I can do on this instead of it just being like, you know, the this ne'er-do-well screw-up yeah. brother. Well, it also, the way it translates to me in what you're doing is he's very charming and likable and that's how he keeps get. that's how he keeps yeah, from he's getting aware killed. Of it. I mean, he's, he would get his ass kicked yeah. all the time if he... If he wasn't charming, he wasn't able. I mean, he's he's a great uncle. Like when you, I love when you when you go and you see you you know with Jonathan Tucker's with Frankie's kids, yeah. and you're like this great fun uncle, and yeah. it's like that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's yeah. how this guy survives. And I think I just you, you I know a lot of people like that. My, I actually, it's funny you bring that up. It's like things seep in that you don't know where something came from. And I actually find it more interesting discovering later where it came from than performing it. Because performing it, you don't know what it is. You're just like, you're acting on instinct. And it's funny you mention that. I never thought about this till now. I have um, six uncles and five aunts all on one side of my family. My dad's only child. My mother was like (laughs) a million brothers and sisters. And two of my uncles used to stay with us for long periods of time. And they were, one of them was kind of like that. He was kind of always into trouble. 
I, I always knew there was something sort of going on, but he would stay with us for like a month or two at a time. But he was the most fun. He would take my hand and fart on it. And I was like, yeah. oh man, he's crazy. And then we would play, have like water gun fights around the house. And I just thought he was super cool. And then I guess around the age of like eight or nine, something started to seep in like, there's something shady about him, but I'm not privy to that. He doesn't expose that to me because why would he? Right. But it's kind of like, it's all in a way sort of, in a way, selfish self-preservation. It's like, I'm doing yeah. this because that's fun for me right now too. And I want to be the cool uncle. But at the same time, I probably wouldn't pick you up at school. Like, it's like, yeah. it's that weird thing. And I think that that's interesting because that, that are, those are layers to somebody completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just a great role too. And, and, and Chuck is like, Chuck McLean, the creator, I think we're just on the same page. It's just one of those things where I just, you just feel like you can just go do it. And there's other things I've done where, and I'm, I'm sure you feel this too. I'm sure all actors do where you're like, I'm not certain of myself in this part and actually with auditioning that happens and you're like I really want the part but in the back of your mind you know you're not certain with it yeah it's just not connecting to you you're not not a good actor you could totally pull it off but it's not there and that's a funny thing that happens all the time because you still want the role yeah yeah <laughs> even though you're like I don't know what I'm doing yeah and those have happened where I've I've gotten a few of those probably I mean like I have no idea what the hell I'm doing well have you ever I'm just thinking the the Netflix thing I did this comedy huge in France and it was oh, yeah. when I saw it on the page I almost didn't want to go in for the audition I'm like they're never going to yeah. hire me he's like a 30 year old blonde like it was not <laughs> yeah, me yeah. at all and once I got into the material and really loved it yeah I I made it my own and then I felt like I mean, it was like every day was a joy because I felt like anything I do is going to be right. It, wow. it just, it just, yeah. it was the same feeling you're yeah. describing when you're saying you just felt like it worked. That's what it felt like. So going to set was a joy. I didn't know what I was going to do, yeah. but I knew it was going to work. I it love just, that. It was, anything I was do is going to work. And it's to some, to some that might sound like cocky or something, but it's not. It's just because it's a part of you. Yeah. You're like, but I also know on the other hand, there are plenty of times when I'm like, anything I do, I'm like, <laughs> ah. I don't know if that's really going to work. I'm yeah. like China, you know. Yeah. So it, it's or, just, it, or it's funny too. You go into something not knowing what it is. I remember the first gig I bought, I got was a miniseries called Above and Beyond. And it was a pretty good part. It was like a $10 million two-part miniseries in Canada, a co-pro with England. And I played this role of this guy. Oh, sorry. That's my phone. Oh, that's right. Not my, or my watch, not my phone. Uh, I played this guy, Drake, who was like a flyer during World War II. And his name is Drake. And I was like, oh, man, it's so cool. And I did it like a leading man. I was like 21 and I, I look kind of young anyway. So I looked like 16 and I did it like a leading man kind of in yeah. the audition. I remember like trying to be cool. I didn't really know what I was doing. And then I got the part. And I'm like, oh, cool. I met with the director after that or had a call back with the director. Got the part. I remember we were all out to dinner um, before the we did the read through and then had a dinner like weeks later. And I'm sitting next to the director. Sterla Gunnarsson is his name. Icelandic guy and he's sitting there and like and he's just like yeah how do you feel or whatever I was like pretty good and he was like yeah 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 you were great in the audition I was like oh thanks man like feeling like so great and cool and like I was like I'm gonna be a romantic lead like <laughs> right after this <laughs> comes out which wouldn't have happened anyway uh and then he leaned over and he was like so I think like Drake is a virgin <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And then, and then like Warrior Mordor is like, I had glasses, super nerdy. And that was me trying to be a romantic yeah. lead. And yeah. they still were like, oh yeah, he's a total sweet little innocent nerd. And it was the best thing he could have said. It totally informed it. Because yeah. before I didn't really know, I was putting on the idea of something yeah. instead of it being real. 
Yeah. And it's funny how that happens, you know? Yeah. And you, and you learn as you go sometimes, sometimes you, you don't quite have it. You, as you're going, you start to go, Oh, that's who, that's who this guy is. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes you're like, I hope, I wish I'd figured that out earlier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like looking back, hmm, how did I start this? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned Canada. Um, you are from a town of 6,000 people. Yeah. You had no connections to the acting business Zero. whatsoever. Take us back a little bit to how this all came to be. You're uh, a hockey player? Yeah, I played hockey growing up. So I'm from a place called Paradise, which is just outside St. John's in Newfoundland, which is in Canada. That's how small it all is. I really need to, which is in North America, by the way. <laughs> um, so Paradise then had 6,000. It might have more now. It was around 6,000 when I was a kid and super small. Like, you know, the closest store was a 20 minute walk. Um, my closest friend was a 15 minute walk. Like it wasn't like, you know, a suburban hanging out on the street, playing ball every day. I played hockey since I was age seven and I was like, I want to be a professional hockey player. I did, never even came remotely close. And, um, and all I did was just play hockey and kind of screw around. And then I remember when I was like 13 or 14, one of my buddies for a school assignment had to do like a video of something. Now, I was born in 84, so this is like probably like 97. So not everyone even had a camera. Most people had like a camcorder. And, but like we had a camcorder without a viewfinder. So that's kind of where we we're at. But his family did have one with a viewfinder. So we did this video and we, we were obsessed in silly movies. Like we loved, I loved the Naked Gun movies. And I loved all those things. We loved it when we used to call it a dummy shot, which is like, I, if I'm like me and you were in a fight and then I go, ah, and I go to pick you up, I grab you like by the hips. And then we cut like to a wide shot where there's a dummy wearing the exact same clothes as you. Yeah. And then I like toss you against a wall or something. Like we just wanted to use that in his thing. And then like everyone in school thought it was like hilarious. Like we we're like, well, that was like kind of like a big deal or like an eighth grade. And then we just, we're like, why don't we just keep doing this? Like, why don't we just keep making movies like on the weekends and stuff? And we didn't even like party and stuff like that. Like we would make movies over and over. We'd edit with two VCRs. Me and my buddy, Jeff and Dave, and we call ourselves JMD Limited, which is Jeff, Mark, Dave. <laughs> and we used to edit. So when we wanted music, because we had no way, there was no editing software, we used one VCR for play, one for record. We would put the two VCRs together. And then when we wanted music to a scene, we would edit the scene together onto a VHS tape, then put that VHS tape into one of the other VCRs, play it. <laughs> then we would tape the TV with the camcorder and play a CD, put the CD player on, we put on like whatever song we like and we'd be like, okay, that song. So all of a sudden the cinematography was completely different during a certain section of the movie because we were filming a TV. Right. And then we'd edit that back into the movie, which was like kind of like, we were pioneers basically of yeah, uh, yeah. editing. Yeah, Walter Murch and, uh, and all, of all these people would be amazed. So it was like the way we edited it together was so silly, but kind of like um kind of smart in a way because no one taught us that we were yeah. like well, that's a way we can do it except sometimes when you film a tv you get these black lines going up and down so then we had to figure out how to not do that so we were like figure out all these things and then we came up with like ways that someone could disappear in a shot where it's like you know we just like cut and then the other person just has to freeze for a second don't take move the out. camera <laughs> take them out and it looks like they disappeared yeah and we come up with all these like kind of ideas and we learned how to do that the hitchcock shot where you're like you're dollying in, but zooming out yeah. at the same time. So the background looks like it's changing. We like learned how to do that. Like on our own, we were just like, I guess that's how you do that. And then we'd show the movies in school. We, and now we're in high school and we started showing them at lunchtime. And these were like 
horribly insensitive movies in every way, cursing and swearing, saying the most awful thing, like teenage boys, right? But everyone loved them. And we'd be like, and we'd be like on weekends, like we go to a parties and at parties where everyone's like drinking and stuff, we'd be like watching our movies. Wow. And we made a ton of them. One of them got to be an hour and five minutes and they were always silly. And we tried to make a few dramas and it's just like, we knew it didn't really work. And we'd still have dramas where there was like a dummy shot in it. <laughs> just to like, we were like, no one will see it coming. Like, it's like, I love you, Jane. And it, but Jane would be my buddy with a wig on. It was like, like we, it, we played all the roles. Three of us played all the roles. And sometimes we wouldn't even, we wouldn't even like, it would be like, I'd be, it'd be me talking to my buddy, Dave. And his, his, his character's name is Gary. And he's just dressed normal. Like my yeah. buddy Dave is, as Gary is just wearing what he wore that day. And I'm like, yeah. Gary, you need to go down to the office and you need to fire Bill. And he's like, okay. And then he'd like leave and then he'd come back in dressing like a different shirt. And, and he'd be, be like, I can't believe you're firing me. I just talked to Gary. And it's like, <laughs> it's the same guy. Like just unabashed. But we thought that was funny too. We were yeah. like, it's funny that it's the same guy because it's so stupid. So we kept doing that. And then we started watching movies more. I saw Fight Club and Fight Club changed my whole life. And then 99, the greatest year of movies is that I've been alive. It was like you had Fight Club and you had Magnolia and American Beauty and The Matrix and Election and like all these just phenomenal movies in one year. The Three Kings. So we started, we were like, oh my God, like that started to change us. And then it got really serious. And then we wanted to like go to film school. I applied to film school, didn't get in. We're in university now. Then I, I auditioned for... Um, a role, uh, I auditioned for a kid's show um, as a host. And I went in, didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was a local Newfoundland thing. They wanted five hosts across Canada. So I'd be the East Coast guy. And you come on in between commercials and you look down the barrel of the camera, and you're like, hey, kids, it's me. And I did it really haphazardly. Like I didn't put much into it. I just heard about it through someone. I was still making movies, trying to meet people. Still, didn't How know. old were you at this point? This is 19 years okay. old. Still didn't know anyone. Not one person in the business. We've been making movies for four or five years. Me and my buddies have not met anyone. But I did do a musical. My sister, my sisters, I have three older sisters. They're all like singers. Like not professional singers, but they could sing and they'd sing around our small town and stuff. And one of my sisters went to theater school. But before that, she didn't know anyone either. She went to musical theater school. She did one musical where she met, got to know the director a little bit. And then the director, I was like, I want to act. I was in doing theater arts in, in high school. There was no like theater program. I went to public school. Like it was like no one acted and no one I knew acted. And I remember I did like a Memorial Day, like play on stage. I remember all my hockey boys were like, man, that was pretty good. <laughs> like, so I was like starting to like gain confidence in it. And we improvised all of our movies, me and my buddy. So I was like learning how to just think on your feet. And then so anyway, so my sister's like, oh, the, this musical theater director I just worked with, why don't you go audition for their, they're doing Bye Bye Birdie. And I can't sing or dance. And I go and I have to sing happy, I just sing happy birthday because I'm like, maybe I'll sound okay doing that. They give me a part as like a small reporter. Through that, I kept just trying to meet people because St. John's, the capital of Newfoundland is a very tight artistic community. Everybody there is in the arts. Everybody. There's theater, there's music, there's plays. There's a lot of film and TV actually that's shot there because it's so distinct looking and everyone has several hats. So then finally I find out about this kid's audition. I do it. I somehow get the role. So now I'm a kid's show host 
I still don't know anybody. And at first I was excited. I was like, I'm on TV. Like, this is crazy. And like telling all my buddies and everyone's watching. like, I can't believe you're on TV, man. It's crazy. Even though I'm like, hi, guys. Yeah. So all my buddies were like, man, it's like so crazy, man. My buddy's a star. He's a movie star. <laughs> and I was like, this is my ticket. And then nothing happened from that because no one's going to watch you on a kid's – as a host, right. not even acting, to be like, he should be the lead of our multi-million dollar film. Right. So I didn't have an agent, didn't have – still had nothing. And then I found out about these auditions, local auditions they're doing for Above and Beyond, which is this miniseries. And then I get it. And then from that, I got an agent in Toronto. And then I moved to Toronto a few years later. And then I didn't work at all, like in Toronto. All right. But let's go back for one second because you're just like, and then I get it. And you go on. Yeah. But – Let's let's just kind of like pull that apart sure. a little bit because that's a big deal. Yeah. So do you think it, I mean, do you remember you, that's the audition you told us about yeah. where you went in as leading guy, <laughs> yeah. but, but like, do you think it's all of that time that you had on camera with your buddies that yes. really led you to have some extra? I think that me getting that role was pure dumb luck because, and that was a game changer because I was able to get an agent and a guy I met on it led to Republica Doyle, a show I did for six years. So, but getting that role was dumb luck. So in the meantime, I didn't know what to do. I didn't get into three film schools. I thought I wanted to be a director more than an actor. Which is shocking considering all the stuff you did. I would think someone would be like, give this kid an opportunity. He's making movies already. I thought so too. But all of the applications for the film schools I applied to, which were good ones in Canada, all were like, we don't want to see any filmmaking, which is so weird. We want to see examples of visual art. And I, I can draw okay, so I just like drew a few things and I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, what the hell is this? Like, and they didn't, and that was like the criteria. No one wanted to see any actual, I guess they didn't want to watch everyone's like dumb movies and sit through them. Yeah. So I was like, I, I don't know how to do, I'm not a visual artist. Like, I think I could be a good director. I'm 18. Like, I don't know. That's, that's, this is normal to yeah. not know how to make a movie, but I, I actually probably came better than a lot of these other guys. Didn't get in. So I studied English. I started doing English, which I ended up finishing. But at the time, it was just really hard because I knew I could do it from doing all these movies. Like, I had all this practice. And it was to me, it was better for me than what theater school would have been because I was learning on the job and I was thinking on my feet. And we're coming up with stories. We were like, we need another scene there to explain why the guy goes there. And then we need a big finale here. And we need to explain this. And just the storytelling, I learned more actually as an actor than as a filmmaker because you realize what do I need to communicate in the scene? What is necessary? And at that time I was writer, producer, director, actor, editor. So I'm like, I need to know exactly how to get us to this point and make it natural by improvising. And my buddies were good at it too, but I took it very seriously and we'd edit on the weekends and everything. So I knew I knew how to do it, but I didn't have an outlet. I had no outlet. I'm living in paradise, Newfoundland, which is a small town. And I'm like, I have nowhere to put this. So I ended up doing the kids show, which was a cool thing. And I was making some money, but I still like, not that much money. And I still lived at home. And I was like, I f- and then I started to feel silly. I was like, I did it for two years and I started to feel kind of dumb. I was like, I'm. They paid not- you and everything. They paid you. So they paid like, me, but, but I felt like I'm going to do this forever. And yeah. and I, I don't want to be a kid show host. I want to be, you know, this person. I want to be Ed Norton and I want to be all these people. And I was like, it's just not going to happen. And then, you know, and I did a few plays pro bono and stuff like that. And it's just not happening. And then I auditioned for this miniseries and it was a year later I got the callback actually. 
So for that whole year, there's no film opportunities, nothing happening. There's no agents. The one that you went as a leading man, yes. you auditioned. A year later. You didn't later. hear for a year. They delayed the whole production. I didn't know what was going on. I don't have an agent to check in. So oh. I was like, well, I guess I'll just hope maybe- What were you doing in the meantime? The host thing? Yeah, and doing theater, but like like local theater. Were you thinking about it or were you just like- Thinking about it like all it, the time because I wanted were, to do movies and I was doing theater, but it was like, you know, it was, it was small, like local theater kind of things. And I was like- and, and no one, I wasn't getting a chance to show what I can do. And, and I wasn't getting paid. You don't get paid for those at all. And I was still living at home doing the kids show thing. And I really just was like, that's going to be my life. I feel like, like, how am I going to be in a movie? Like how I, can, I don't have an agent. I can't just go to Toronto. Like I don't have any money really. I wasn't making enough to like do anything. So then a year later I get the part and I was like, they went all around the province. They wanted to get a local person for that role. And I happened to be the guy and I was, it's just luck. And I was like, this is crazy. But then the weird thing was I go to Toronto with an agent and that's when, and I thought that, okay, now I did that. And you always think that's not good. Now I got that. This is going to come. And then nothing came. Yeah. And then I was a waiter and then I worked at a, as an usher and I was just, and I went way deep into debt and was really, really miserable and was trying to make movies. So I'd rent cameras. Now I was like, I'll write and direct my own short. So I'd rent cameras, pay for them on my credit card that was racking up. I bought editing software. This is like 2008. I'm like 24. And I would hire just friends of mine and I would do, and I'd submit them to festivals, turn down from every festival. <laughs> like these were serious movies that I like wrote and like, you know, 15 minute shorts, not one festival, like on like three or four of them that I must have spent 10, 12 grand on. 10, 12 grand each or all together because renting yeah. cameras and renting stuff. And, and I did try and pay people and submissions was the worst because yeah. you had to burn DVDs too to send to the festival at the time. And it sucked spending all that. And even the packaging I used to hate, they were like a dollar 49 each, the bubble wrap packaging. I was like, and, and just literally never got into any of them. And I was like, like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then and then I ended up getting this part on this Canadian show, which, you know, changed a lot. But it's funny. But then even after that, I didn't, I couldn't <laughs> yeah. get a job outside of that show. Yeah. I couldn't, I it did Republic of Doyle. People liked it, but I was felt like I was being pigeonholed because I was like the comedic relief of the show. First two, three years was just, I can't believe I'm on a TV show. This is crazy. But then after that, it was like, I'm just this guy and I don't do anything else. So the other six months of the year, I'd go back to Toronto because we shot that show in Newfoundland and I would just sit there. And I'd have two auditions in six months and just be like, and I wasn't making Canadian shows. You don't make, uh, you make like a, a fifth of what you'd make in the States. Okay. So still making good money, but yeah. not like I couldn't buy a house. I was still at debt. I was still yeah. in debt for my student loans and I wasn't, and I couldn't get a job anywhere else. So it was just funny. It was like, yeah, I was fortunate. I was working, but I, every time I thought I was going to be okay, I was not okay. I was yeah. like, this is just not working. Um, and that's why I was driven to move to the States. I was like, I'm just going to go to the States. Let me just get in inside your mind for a second, because I, I think this could be helpful to people listening, which is like, what was the thought? How did you frame it when you were in that stage of like, you had a lot of debt, but you were working. Did you just always believe somehow you're going to make it in some way, shape or form? Were you ever like, oh crap, I've got to I got to figure out the debt. I've got to go get uh, a safety job. Were yeah. you, what was the what was the mindset? Like, how did you deal with that stress and that uncertainty? That's a great question. I love listening to other actors talk about <laughs> their things like this too because it helps me so much. I felt, and it's personal to everyone. I remember watching Edward Norton in Primal Fear, and I remember being like, "That was before we started making movies." Me and my buddies. I was like, "Oh, that's a performance." 
no one ever showed me before. We didn't go to theater. I didn't know. I was 12, 13. I never even thought about an actor being good at something. And I remember looking at it and being like, my God, he's good at this thing. Like I knew Denzel Washington was and Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise, but I never thought of it as performing. And I thought, well, well, I could do that. Like, why couldn't I do that? There's if he's a guy who's doing it, why I'm a guy who could also do it. Yeah. Like, why not? Like, I don't understand why I couldn't. And I guess I always felt that, that I was like, I can do it. I don't know. It's hard to say who the best actor is ever. Like everyone's playing a different part and it's different opportunities and there's, and there's so many things that come together. So I always just thought, I just know how to do this. And I think it was from making movies with my buddies. I had so much confidence and it wasn't cockiness. I just, and I, I talk about this a lot with, with, with friends of mine that I, I've never found acting uh, hard. I find it challenging and sometimes, and certainly hard on the ego. And sometimes you think you suck and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes you never know if you'll work again, but like, a construction worker doesn't go around being like, oh, how am I going to make this building? Like, how am yeah. I going to nail that, hammer that nail? I, I always felt about it like that. I was like, I know I can do it. And I guess I had this weird thing that I was like, eventually someone's just going to see that I can do it the way I think I can do it. And it was this weird thing that I, I kind of came to. So it was really tough because it was like, no one's seeing it. I'm just waiting for people to see this thing I know how to do. And I don't, I didn't think like I, I'm going to be a superstar, but I think people should pay me for this. Fair enough. Cause those people are doing it. I was always looking at other people being like, why not? And I think that goes for anybody in life can do anything. I even have this inscribed here. It's P- PWI on this ring and it's your passion will inform you. I wanted to give it to my daughter. I kind of came to this kind of thought before I had a kid. I was like, I want to pass it on to her when she's older, this idea. And I wanted to give her like something of mine. Um, and I think if you're passionate enough about something, then it will inform what you're going to do. And if you don't really care about it, that will reveal itself. And it might take time and that time will be necessary to be like, oh, shit, you know what? I don't really want to write plays or I don't really want to do that. But if you are passionate enough, you will, you can't stop yourself. And that's how I felt. I was like, I cannot stop myself. So I found out I learned everything I could. I still read two books at a time, always a fiction book and always one on film still to this day and I've been doing it for 15, 20 years and I always read uh, and I watch a movie every day because I'm like, there's more I can learn. There's more I can learn. There's more I can learn. Cause so that I already knew I was passionate enough. So I was like, it's going to happen at some point because I care too much. I can't not do it. And if you don't feel that, then maybe there's something else for you or maybe you need this time to figure it out or whatever. And you'll it'll come back to you, but it never lost me. That it was like it's necessary. It's I have to do it because I it's, I'm too obsessed. I mean, wow, that little <laughs> clip right there that is so awesome. Oh, thanks. What man. you just said, thanks. I mean, I, I'm the whole time I'm sitting here with you. I'm thinking, I'm actually thinking of my son. I just told you, just turned twelve, yeah. and he and his buddies make films, and oh, cool. I just want him to hear this conversation. Oh, nice. Because there's so there's so much in it that's just. It's it's so simple. Yeah, it's it's so simple. It's like just do the thing that you love. You will. Yes, you will get. Better. And when you feel like like I write, but anytime I feel like I should be writing something else, and I I don't really get writer's block. You know, my scripts might suck, but I don't really get writer's block. But so there's always something I feel like I could be writing. But sometimes I'm like I don't feel like it right now. I just don't feel like it, and not because I'm lazy. It's because I don't feel it. So I'm not going to do it. 
So my passion for that right now is not there. And that's okay. Cause I'm disciplined enough. And I was going to say, and yet you do the movie a day, which is a discipline, which I'm sure there are days you got to yeah. wake up. Where you're like, maybe you don't want to watch a movie that morning. Maybe Sometimes gonna, it's you know? laborious. I just, yeah. I love Andre Tarkovsky and I just watched his movie, the sacrifice, which just about killed me. I was like, but I can't not finish it. I'm like, I got to finish it. I'll learn something from it. It's just like a bad relationship. You see what not to do. You're yeah. like, for you, like I'm not saying I wouldn't, Tarkovsky made bad decisions as a director, but it's like, for me, I wouldn't have done that. So I'm glad I watched it to know, here's what didn't work for me. And here's what did work. And it's kind of like being in a relationship. You're like, I didn't like it when the person used to do that. And with this one, I'm like, I think that could have been more entertaining. I think they could have chopped it up. Do you keep a journal of your responses to those movies or no? No, I think I just like it so much that it's already in my head. I just I just think about it. And I watch movies on repeat constantly anyway. And even movies that I don't really love that much. I'm like, I'm going to revisit that to just give it a go. But the other thing I want to say about like your passion too is like, I think if you have passion, will, and information, you'll be fine. It's if you love it and you're willing to deal with it, the stuff that's come with it and you have enough information about it. Like, for example, if I went into audition for something and I didn't know that I might not hear back from them. So I didn't have that information and, or I wasn't willing to deal with that. Then my passion's probably not enough to deal with that on a personal level, just because I love it and I'm going to go do it. And I'm going to go audition. It might break me down a little bit, but if I'm willing to deal with the fact that I might not hear anything at all, and I know that from experience and I've listened to enough podcasts and I've read enough books that that's the way it works, then I'm going to be okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, there's so so many things I, I want to, uh, you know, get into. Well, let, let's get a little bit into um, that, that six year experience. We don't have to go again so deep on it, but what happened in the last three seasons, like when you were done with that show, were you done with it? Did you want out at that point? And that's, you're like, I'm going to America. Yeah, I, I did. And not because of anyone involved or anything like that. It was just, it's time for the next thing. And I don't think I'd want to do six seasons, more than six seasons of anything. Like it, it's, it's just, I need a change. So Georgina, my wife, who's an actress uh, as well, obviously, as you know, you worked with her. She, we got our green cards and we got it just before the last season. She was on a show in Canada as well on the same network. And we got our green cards just before the last season, moved everything down, spent a lot of money. Um, and then, and then went back and did our seasons one last season each. So we kind of planned it pretty well and then came down and I was so eager. I was just so eager. I felt like in Canada and I'll say this, I, I love Canada and I love working there and I love a lot of people there, but there are a lot of flaws in the business there and in the industry there. And I saw that from an actor's perspective, I was like, I felt like a lot of the same people were being cast. I felt like there weren't a lot, weren't a lot of risks taken. And I think that it has to do a lot with, you know, fear of getting the next job because you're not the States where there's tons of money invested. So I get why people feel that way. Sometimes I'm talking about higher ups, not my buddies who are directors and stuff like that. Cause they're in a different position. They're doing the same thing we're doing, but I feel like it's kind of squashed a little bit because most things don't make hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's funny. You'd think people are trying to be safer with hundreds of million dollars, but it actually makes you willing to take more risks because you are making other things that that one make a, might make us money. So we can take a risk on this one. Yeah. Whereas in Canada, the business is not there as much like the financially. So everyone's, everything's a bit more, we're not sure what to do. And that's why I found it was being cast. I was like, no one will take a chance. There's no chances taken here at all. Like, and I've had a lot of problems with that. I was like, this is kind of backwards. 
I think you need to take risks and not try and be something else or something like that and be safe. And I think that the, the business in the States, as crazy as it is, there are a lot of good people working in it in higher up positions. That is like, a, that's kind of a, an unhip thing to say, but I think it's true. I've met a lot of people like who I'm like, look at Jennifer Todd. Jennifer Todd. Is Jennifer Todd. Say, yeah. Amazing. And she is high, high up there. Yeah. And one of the most easy people to talk to, open-minded, gets it, like willing to take risks and stuff like that. And that's what you're looking for. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of people come to Los Angeles. So you're not just going to get this kind of idea people have about Hollywood. It's like, yeah, but a lot of people come from working really hard, like what you and I do. It's like, yeah. this is hard work. Well, that's, I mean, Jen was on this show and, yeah. you know, you get her origin story and other people. You said you listened to the Duplass episode. Yeah. You, know, you realize when you start doing this, everybody has this story. Yeah. You know, it's so great sitting down with you. Like I said, I look at your bio and I go, oh my God, this guy's just, you know, it's, it's like, this looks like, what, what's the problem? Yeah. And then you sit down and you talk and you go, oh wow, that's what it, that's what it took to get to that point. Yeah. And even then it never ends. It's like, you know, and it's because it's like, where does your ambition, um, start to destroy your soul. Cause it can, after a while, if you're so ambitious, you're like, well, I don't have this. And then I don't have that. And yeah. I want this. And I don't own a house. And it's like, there's, there's always something else in filmmaking. It's like, it's like, okay, it looks like that movie's going to go great. But now I got to deal with this and deal with that. And you, I, you, you have to just go along with the ride because there's always going to be another thing. Yeah. And I always just try and look back to my 15 year old self and how happy he would be with me today. And I think he would be very, very pleased and surprised. So I'm like, just remember that and know that the next thing that you want is a cool thing to want. And there's always surprises too. How many times have you gotten a call? They're like, wow, cool. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And that's what's fun too. So it's like the same thing that's going to surprise you is going to disappoint you. So it's like, you can't rally against it. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. That's part you take the good with the bad. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, they inform one another in a weird way. Well, speaking of uh, your younger self, what about fatherhood? I know you've got yeah. a very young daughter. How old is she? She's 20 months. Someone ripped on me yesterday for saying, still using months, but I'm okay with it until she's 21 months. <laughs> so she's a year and eight months. And how has that changed? If it has, how has that changed the landscape of your career, your view of acting, your everything? Massively. Like, not when I go to set, but I think I'm more like, I can compartmentalize. And I'm sure you, when I say that word, you're probably like, yep, because you're a father too. You have to, that I don't, there's less, um, there's less like bullshit in the way for me right now. It's like, go to set, do the job, come home. I, I can get a 10 page audition right now. And I've done this and taped it an hour later. I'm not joking. When I was in New York and we were shooting City on a Hill, Georgina and I, I had to tape two, uh, two scenes for a, a big movie and we can only do it. We have no help. We don't, with our child, we don't have a nanny and we don't have any family living in Los Angeles or in New York where we were filming in a much smaller apartment. Same deal here. There you go. Yeah. So you're like, you are hands-on, you are the ones doing it, which I love. And we kind of like it that way, even though we complain about it, but we like it that way. Yeah. So the only time we can do self-tape auditions is when Penelope, our daughter is taking a nap. It's the only time you don't want to do it at night because it's too dark and the light's not great. And even though we have a light, it's still not enough. And so sometimes we were doing auditions where it's like, I should be yelling, but I'm like, how dare you have done that? Like, how dare you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, and we've watched it being like, I'm totally trying to be quiet. And the cat's the director's meowing. watching it. They're like, I loved his choice to be quiet in that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No one else would have thought of that. Um, 
he must have kids and a cat. <laughs> so anyway, so this one day I have to do these two scenes, pretty big scenes. And I'm in there like going over it. I just got it like the night before. And Georgina's in uh, the other room putting Penelope down. And I know we got about an hour and 20. I'm like, that's plenty of time. We're really quick studies on that. So I'm going over it while I'm doing it. My agent sends me another movie that they're like audition for either character because it was like the friend role. And it seemed like something that will probably go like a white guy and not a white guy. So they were like audition for both. And I was like, and it was like a good, it was a good like movie to do. And I was like, oh man. So I learned it within the 10 minutes she was putting her down, both roles. It was like nine pages. And then we taped all like eight scenes within the hour and 20. Oh, you, wow. And I was happy with it and they got good feedback. One of them, I was actually very, very close to going. And then they just went in a completely different direction and stuff like that. But it got like very far. And that's not to say that I'm a great actor. It's just, I have to learn quick. (laughs) So I'm like, we, I can get 10 pages and tape it an hour later without looking at the sides. Oh, in those scenes too, we taped, I was not looking at this, yeah, the, the, I just it's it's so funny. So many things you've said today. I just had this happen. Yeah. We were we were out to to dinner for my son's birthday. I get an email. I have to put myself on tape for something, and and I'm I'm flying to go you know surprise my brother for his birthday. Oh, I actually changed our our interview. Yeah, around, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I was like, I don't know how to do it. I you know I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I usually tape with Messina. He's out of town, and and next thing I know, somebody who I met through this podcast has a company that does self taping. Oh wow! And I and I went to him the next. I I called him or emailed him that night. Have never met him. Said, can I can you get me in at nine tomorrow? And I went. And I put it on and. Totally off book, and yeah. I love the tape, and you know, I'm just still waiting here. I have no idea if it's going to happen, but I was just like, because you had to, yeah. It's like that. That's just you know, that's an opportunity, and yeah. you're like, okay. I remember one time I went in for Deadpool two, and they couldn't release the script because non disclosure because it's such a big script and all that kind of stuff. And it was uh, Mary Vernu was casting, and something went wrong with my download of the script because you have to sign all these things like electronic signatures and everything. And it was like, it was one of the bad guys. I didn't see Deadpool too. Cause I hate that movie now. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so they, they're like, Oh, it's not working. He can just come in later tomorrow or send No, he can send a tape. And I was like, no, I'm not sending a tape. I want to go in the room. So they're like, okay, well he can come in at his slot is nine 45. We don't come in until nine. I was like, I'll come in at nine. I'll get the physical sides from you. I'll go learn it. And it was nine pages with an Irish accent. And I came back in and I did it. And I was just like, cause I didn't have, when, when you have a kid, I think, I think it's a good lesson in this business anyway, for people listening. It's like, don't use a kid as an excuse. Cause I do now. I'm like, that's how I compartmentalize. I should have been able to do it before because I'm clearly capable and doing stuff on four or five hours sleep. And when I'm doing notes, I'm writing four different movies right now. They're in different stages of development and pre-production that I'm like, I got two hours I got to do these notes right now. And producers will be like, you're really fast. I'm like, it's not because I'm good. It's because I don't have a choice. This is the only window that I can possibly get this done. And it makes you just think that much quicker. So having a baby and a wife, it's just, it makes you be like, that's just what I got to do. And daddy time is daddy time. And it's like, just as much as I, that's what I'm writing right now. I'm just hanging out with her and letting her run all over me and, you know, fart and, <laughs> and scream and hit me and do her what the hell she does. 
but it's crazy how, I don't know about you. Could you, do you think you could have done that as well before? No. I mean, I, I often say that, that I have, you know, you know, I don't have a lot of patience for my friends that, that don't have kids that say they can't do it. You're like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You're like, what you are could. you doing with that? You, but you, you didn't, but, you know, but you didn't know it at the time. You yeah. know, it's like, we were only able to adjust because we're thrown into that yeah. pot of boiling water. And that's now how you have to deal. Yeah. To and you enjoy your time. Like when I'm on set now, just chilling in the trailer reading i'm like oh my god this is like yeah. a vacation a flight is a vacation oh yeah <laughs> my like, wife is like you know it's like, oh you're going to work yeah, yeah, like, yeah you know yeah, like it's just a nice like, hotel yeah you're okay, away you're, on a plane. you're yeah, it's quiet you're just focused on that yeah uh so you mentioned a couple of things uh georgina great actress i got the chance to work with her on that pilot as you mentioned how is that with two actors in the family. I mean, I'm just thinking now that one of the the benefits business-wise is that you have someone great to tape with. Huge. That's that's kind of, I was like, oh, wow. They just put the baby down and go do the tape. Yeah. There's that, but I imagine there are, you, you know, it's got to be a, a real negotiation of two people doing it at the yeah. same, doing the same thing at the same time. What if you both get work, you have the kid, how do you, you It's know. It's madness to tell you the truth. And, um, it's great because we have a very healthy, very open, um, not open relationship, open, open, <laughs> open marriage, very open. That's going to be the like, log line. That's going to be the title of this episode, very how to have an open marriage. With I can't Bush. stress the word open enough. <laughs> very open. Um, no, open communication. We, we talk about everything. Like, you know, if one's upset, we calmly kind of, I say calmly right now, not always, but you know what I mean? I think it's a very healthy marriage. And so it is helpful having someone else, but I'll say this. It's like, we can be viral to one another in a bad way. Sometimes like, you know, sometimes it is hard when the other one's working. And you're not, that is totally hard. And we'll say it. We'll be like, yeah, it's just tough. You know, you're doing this cool thing. And I'm just like, not. And it's like, that is tough, but I think you have to talk about it. We talk about it. And the other thing is like, if someone's kind of going through something it's, it can bring the other person, it, it can make the other person realize the parallels within their career. You're like, oh, I didn't hear on that. I thought it was going to happen. And they, and they, you know, and they, and they, you know, they didn't want like, you know, a white guy or whatever, which is all good. But yeah. you're like, that happens. And you're like, and you're like, oh, or they didn't want, uh, you know, someone my as young as, or I was told this, I wasn't Ken doll hunky enough. So <laughs> you never know. And you have to accept it because they have something in their mind. They're casting for a reason. You can't hate on them. But it can just bring you down being like, oh, man, like, am I going to get another one? And then the other person then probably starts thinking similar stuff. Well, I'm not as good looking as that person. Right. Yeah, and I probably didn't get that one. And you can't help but go there. So it can be kind of contagious. Yeah. So we have to be very, very aware of that at all times and support the other one when they're doing something. Georgina just landed to do a job right now. And I just got off the phone with her coming here. And I'm waiting to hear on like a bunch of different type things having to do with filmmaking and acting. And I was just like, oh man, it's just like, you know, waiting, you just got to deal with it. And then I realized like, I can't be like that right now. She's going to do a job. You just got to be like, cool. How was your day? Have fun. Yeah. Because they don't want to be burdened while they're doing something that they love worrying about their partner who's upset. Right. About the same business that then now they can be upset and bring that to work with them. So yeah. it's like, it's just, you just got to be chill. It's respect. Yeah. yeah. Knowing, knowing what's out there and respect. So you mentioned filmmaking, how, and you mentioned you know, not getting cast or getting cast for things out of your control. How has being a filmmaker informed or helped 
you as an actor because you've had to make choices on actors that come in for you. And yeah. I know when people come in for you, you think a bunch of them are great, but you only give the job to one of them. Yeah. Has that helped you in terms of releasing you at, when you're an actor going in for something? Has that helped you just knowing like, yeah, they've got their, they got to pick someone. It wasn't me. Yeah. I, I 100% get it. I hate the name game. But the name game exists, has to exist in this business. And by name game, I mean celebrities, people who are known, who have foreign value and money and stuff. I get it because it's a business and someone's got to make money. Otherwise, people people got to eat. And people have corporations that they have to keep going. And I don't like to take the side of the corporation, take the side of the man. But it's true. No one's trying to screw. Most people are not trying to screw people out of something. They're trying to make a movie that makes the company money so they can make other movies. And if Michael Bay didn't make $150 million movies you know, that are popcorn entertainment, we wouldn't have uh, Midsommar or we wouldn't have movies like that. We wouldn't have, we would get out like probably because the companies would be like, we can't, you know, we're not making enough money. Yeah. And it's like what I go back to, I think they make enough money that they are actually able to take risks if you have good people at the helm. So for me, I kind of realize all of those things because that's what happens to me a lot. It's like they went with more of a name and you're like, all right, like I get it. They're trying to sell their movie. I, that's why they did it. They don't do it because they hate me. They're trying to sell their movie. And if you can sneak in there sometimes and just get a really cool part like City on a Hill or something, then that's just what you work for. And just assume you're just fucking keep going and your passion will inform your decision on the next job and you'll be right for that one or you won't be right for that one. But the thing is that you're just not the thing. It's not that you're not good. You're just not the thing. And I know what that's like watching people and being like, they're fan phenomenal. I'm never going to be able to sell them as intimidating to this person that they have to be. Or I'm never going to be able to sell them that they're the sweet mother. They're, they're trying their darndest and it's nice, but it's just not going to work. And that's just what it is. And I don't get mad anymore. It's like, there's nothing to be mad about. It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I'm not the guy. I can't be the guy for them. Like, I'm not going to go in and be like, oh, I am the guy. And they'll be like, okay, you're ruining our movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah. It's, well, it's well one question uh, before I wrap it up with these, these three questions I want to give you is you talked about doing an Irish accent in like two seconds for that audition. On City on a Hill, you have nailed the Boston thing. Oh, thanks, man. Nailed it. I went to school there. I know it. I know oh, guys cool. like that. You nailed it. I thought maybe you had Boston ties. It sounds like you don't. No. Um, have you always been great with accents? One of the things I, I may have even told you this, but when I first got to set or, or actually before I started working on City on a Hill, I went for my wardrobe fitting and I said, oh yeah, I know uh, Georgina Riley's husband, Mark O'Brien is working on the show. And they said, Oh, he's amazing. He's like a, he's like a young Gary Oldman. So I thought you would want to oh hear gosh, that yeah, if I didn't yeah. tell you that. So Gary Oldman is just a chameleon. Excuse me, I'm just going to go pass out for uh, <laughs> the rest of my life. I swear to God, someone <laughs> yeah, yeah. said it. So you, so that he is a, a chameleon. And I think what you did with, uh, you know, in that particular role with the Boston thing, it sounds like with the Irish accent you put it on. Is that something that, that you've worked hard on? Do you just have a great ear for it? What, what is your way in with that? I think it's, I think it's when you have to, I do have a good ear for it. I can't do Australian. I can do just about almost anything else except Australian. If I have to sit down and listen to it, luckily I've only had to do it for an audition once, but yeah, I, I find it, I find it not too bad once you just pay attention to it. Once you just like sit down and just really listen to someone for a little while, it just cracks. And then I'm like, okay, now I can just, I can just kind of do it on my own. I really think it comes down to too. It's like as an actor, 
there was one thing I didn't I didn't study acting, but like I loved Stella Adler said something about imagination. She talks about like imagination. There has to be some imagination there. Once again, this is all for me. Because if I'm just doing it real, I'm it's 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 not real. There's a camera there and there's a boom guy and everything. I, I'm cre- I'm making something up. And I think if I just did it just real, I think it just, it would limit it. And I think it goes back to making movies when, with my buddies that it was like, I have to communicate this to get us to the next scene too. And if I'm just playing it real and just doing that, then I'm not furthering the story in an interesting way. And I'm not doing something that's maybe a little bit different than what we would have thought it could be. And I think my imagination has to come into it a little bit where it's like, oh, that's different. Like I wouldn't have thought that. And I think accents kind of fall in line with that too, where it's like, I just am really open. I'm just really open to it to be like, yeah, I think I can just do it. And then when I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, I just can't because I believe that I could. I think it's just because I believe that I could and it might suck. But as long as I feel like it's good enough, then that's all I'm really concerned about. Yeah. Can't believe the Gary Oldman comment compliment. Oh, yeah, Someone man. said it. Is all that matters. Someone said it. I just rewatched uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh yeah, I think that might be my favorite performance of his. You know what's you know what's um, really thinking about Gary Oldman is this is not one that anybody would point out, but what he did in Batman Begins oh. has been inspiration for me with City on a Hill. He, oh I, wow! Because because, yeah. because my character is. It's almost like I, I'm trying to do the opposite of Jim. I'm almost trying to take the color out of him. He's just a guy. He's a great leader yeah. who who gets the job done, doesn't want any fanfare. Yeah. So I'm trying to almost mute, like, like let his action speak for himself. And I thought of Gary Oldman in wow. Batman Begins. I remember watching that. And I was like 40 minutes into the movie. And I'm like, who's the guy playing Commissioner Gordon, I can't believe, I remember thinking like, I can't believe they gave, this is a pretty big role. Yeah, they gave it. it to somebody. And all like two minutes later, I'm like, holy crap, yeah. that's Gary Oldman. Yeah. He, he took all of the color out of himself and just, sorry, and just played this like good cop. Yeah. And, and I was, I was as impressed with him doing that as seeing him in like the professional where he's crazy and yeah. all that, like, cause he, he, he made a conscious choice to to suck the color out of himself. Yeah, which that's was so, interesting. That's so interesting because I think it's like some some of these actors. I think it goes back to like I can't describe what the hell's going on in his mind because he's one of the greatest actors ever, really. Like, and but I think it goes back to they they have this symbio symbiotic relationship with the camera and with the story, knowing that doing very little like that will work. And someone else might do it and it doesn't. And I really think that your face plays a huge part. I worked with Maz Mickelson once and he doesn't need to do that much. You watch his work, Benicio Del Toro, they don't do that much physically. And I, f- I wonder if that's a bit of a choice because their faces are so dynamic and unique and interesting that it's like, you don't need to do anything, man. Yeah. Just stand there and we're in. And it's like, I think that knowing the story... I'm going off on a bit of tangent here, but this is interesting to me. It's like, I think it's also, I was going back, like make things interesting. Like I did the front runner and the, the Jason Reitman movie or arrival where it's like in the movie, I'm not doing a whole lot and I'm not Gary Oldman, but what I'm saying is that it's much more boring than how Gary Oldman would have done it. (laughs) What I'm doing in the movie, he would have made it somehow amazing without doing anything at all. 
And and there's a hundred other actors who do that too. We were like, not like Benicio del Toro as a young, a young Benicio del Toro in one of those roles I did where it's like, I'm not doing that much like physically or like in size of performance. They would have made it an Oscar winning performance. But I still find that you need to know your role in the movie. Yeah. And it's like, that's not my role to distract. It's, it's not, it's theirs. Yeah. It's, I just have to be there. And it goes back to making movies with my buddies. It's like, what is necessary for the scene? And the necessary for the scene is for me to just look at the movies, look at the, the, um, the commander telling us, giving us orders, just look at them. Yeah. How do I serve the story? And it's sometimes hard on your ego for me right now. This particular role is because I'll, I'll see a clip of myself. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. And then I see you or bacon come on and I'm like, Oh God, they're so charming and they're doing so much. But if I try to do that, but also if I try to do that, it's, it's wrong for the, it's, it's not really what my guy is doing in that particular situation. Maybe in the future, he's presented with some situation that, that there yeah, are more yeah. fireworks, but I can't just as an actor go, I want to do something that's cool. I got to do like <laughs> yeah. what serves the story. And by the way, and I'm not saying this because you brought it up, you come in and you feel like a leading man, like of that world as an actor, as a performance, but also right away. And Kevin Interdonato, did you, you know? Yeah, Kevin, yeah, I love him. Yeah. One of the greatest guys, good buddy of mine. He's Amanda Clayton who plays um, Kathy Ryan on the show, Jonathan Tucker's wife. That's her real life husband. Yeah. And he he's on the show as well. And he told me, he was like, I saw um I saw uh, Matt do it and I but I was in another room and they go in and it was so different than how I pictured it. He did it so calm and easy, that scene with Alice, your first scene. Oh yeah. And he was like, cause he's like further away, because he's just like tells him where to go into the room. And yeah. then Aldous goes in and you're in there with him. And he was like, it was so different. And I was just kind of like sort of hearing it and sort of watching from afar. And he was like, it was so calm and easy. And I actually noticed it too. I like that moment when one of the characters is struggling to live. I'm not going to say who yet, even though it's aired, but still you just walk by and look at him. And you didn't, I, I was like, wow. He's just like, that's business. Like, well, you know, that's I first walk of all, by and look at so him much. and just keep going. And I actually love that. Whereas like, you know, some other actors might have a moment they might well up and it's like, this guy's not going to well up. He's like, holy crap. This is a crazy crime scene right now. Yeah. That I, I gotta, I gotta give, I gotta give credit on that. I mean, thank you. First of all, this is, this has made this whole episode worth it to have you talk about <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> I lo- no, no, I love that moment where you no, just look you, and man. then continue on. But you know like, what that is? That's I always gravitate toward the the technical advisors uh, on a set and Johnny Mac. I don't know if you got a chance. He's a he's a an ex oh, cool. NYPD homicide oh, yes, detective. I, times, I went yeah. with him. I talked to him. I went with him to a precinct in Chinatown. We talked to these guys, and one oh, of the wow. things he's been saying, it, it was my original instinct with this guy, but then he has backed it up, and I and I keep going like with that raid scene. I go, what, what do you think of this? Basically, he's like. You know, when you're calling the raid, he's like, you've done this hundreds of times. When you go and you see your guys down, yes, he's down. But right now, the reason these guys look up to you as a leader is because you keep your calm and you keep your cool. He's like, if you lose your shit while you see your guy down, everybody else is going to like, they're going to, they're going to lose their heads. So you have to go in and you have to maintain this thing. So it's like, you look, but my job at that point is to go in and make sure everything's clear. And you know, someone's taking care of him anyway. And somebody's on him already. Someone is talking to him already. And there was another moment in the, in the office scene where there's something where I talk about like the girl on the, um, on the mailbox and 
we did it and I kind of threw it away. And then the director said, Alex had said, you know, maybe there's a little more. So we did it, but I didn't, I didn't want to go. Yeah. I'm very conscious in this role of like, I don't want to make the choice that the actor would want to make that's going to make him look like he's doing yeah. stuff. I want to think of like, what's the real guy in that situation? What What is, what would really happen? And like a lot of these guys that I know are in that position, they're not like the cops that we talked to. They're just like, they're just dudes that happen to chase bad guys. Yeah, and you also, it's like what you said, it's like there's some already some big performances on the show and it's like if everybody's like that, it's so that's also knowing your form. Like you know what you're doing. You've done this for a long time and you're like, I know that that's I'm not, not playing the trumpet. Yeah, what's yeah. crazy <laughs> is- I'm not playing you, the trumpet. You know, no, no, no. But you could play that role like this for 20, let's, let's say 10 episodes. You could play it exactly that way where similar type- uh, not scenes, but similar type things where he throws it away. And then in the last moment, if you just look at something and he's remotely emotionally affected or he yells or you have that big boisterous moment, it, it will mean everything that you're like, whoa. Right. And people will be more affected because they, you've set up a character, you've set up like yeah. a real person. And I think it's like, and I think those are the hardest roles. Sorry, I know I'm like, yeah, I'm no. here. But I think they're the hardest roles. I like I've done a couple of them. Like I did a movie called Anon with Andrew Nichol, where at the end you find I'm the villain, but throughout you don't know. I'm just a guy who works for the team. And he said, on second viewing, I want people to know it was you. And I was like, how the hell do I do that? Because I don't even do that much. And I found that it's so hard just to do very little, but just enough. Yeah. And that's way harder to me than having a monologue. Yeah. One line in a scene is way harder than monologue. Yeah. And I do want to wrap this up, but I can't help. I got to go back to the Ed Norton primal fear oh, yeah. performance because that's what he did. So my relationship to that movie, it's funny you brought it up. I studied with Terry Schreiber in New York City and Ter that's who Ed Norton studied with. Oh, wow. So for like a year before primal fear, we would hear about my student Edward, my student Edward, and yeah. he just did this thing. And he told us about how he went and screen tested with Richard Gere, but we didn't know who he was. And he would talk about it. And then he's like, he's going to do the people versus Larry Flint. So I hear Edward, Edward, Edward. I, I was living in the city. It was my first summer in the city. I go to the theater by myself and I see primal fear. And I was just, you know, after hearing about this, yeah. this actor. And you knew it was started, him. I, I knew it was a previous student of Terry Schreiber's, okay, yeah. you know, like, so I've been hearing stories about like, he's like the student that went on and did it. And I go, I'm like, hey, let me, let me go see this. And I remember the credits rolled and I sat in that theater and just thought, wow. Yeah. I should, I should really think about, can I do the, I, I mean, I was kind of like, I was blown away by that performance, but what he did was the way he set that up. Yeah. It was the setup. Yeah. It was a, it was because the one persona was, was cloaking us from seeing the other, the, bad, the stutter, the bad which the apparently stutter, wasn't in the script. Of, it, it, was, it was an incredible performance. And that's like the, the calculation and, yeah. and, and in a way like with, with something like this, when you're in TV, it's different. I don't know where my character will or could go. I hope that there could be fireworks for him in the future, Yeah, you know? Um, but, but until then I had to do what was, what was given to me and kind of make a, a, a you know, a decision on how you, like you said, how you set him up. Yeah. And, and how it, you fit into the story. And yeah. it's like, yeah. it's, it's everything. How it's, do I serve the story? Yeah, yeah. Because, and it's not, it sounds like it's really like altruistic or something. Like, I just want to help right. with the story. I don't, it's not about me. It's like, no, but your performance will suck if you're not 
helping the story. It'll right. be a distraction, which it'll look like that person's trying to do something. And I'm sure you've been involved with that with yeah. people seeing people do that. And I've seen that. I'm like, whoa, this is so distracting. This is going to get cut up. <laughs> and yeah, then it yeah. does. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that didn't make it. Well, listen, I, I, I apologize to any audience hearing too much about me in your interview. But no, let's, I so let's get to that. these last, these last three things. Uh, the word no means what to you? Uh, who cares? There's the next one. Good. I just don't care. What's your go-to mantra when, when everything hits the fan? Do you have like a, a go-to mantra that gets you through? Um, your passion will inform you. There it is. It's yeah. on the ring that's going to your yeah. daughter. And then if you could give advice to your younger self, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? <sighs> that's a good question. I would have intervened at about 26, 27 And I would have said, enjoy it while it's happening because you're going to get to the place at some point. So you'd, it'd be better if you didn't look back and have been upset the whole time. That is awesome. Mark O'Brien. I love, love, love this conversation. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thanks man. Anytime. Yeah. And everybody will, you know, there'll be plenty of stuff in the show notes. uh, So you can go check out more about Mark and, um, if you're not watching it already and you haven't watched the season up until now, by the time this is out and you're hearing it, we're toward the end of City on a Hill first season. You got to go back and watch it. His performance is electrifying and vulnerable and all of it. So, Mark O'Brien, thanks, man. Thanks, man. Okay. I hope I didn't oversell it for you in the beginning, but I just loved that conversation. And while there are tons of takeaways about risk, hard work, joy, and self belief, I found my top three by getting quiet about 10 minutes after Mark left my house and just distilling the whole riff into its most basic form. And this is what I came up with. Feel free to write in and challenge me because there were way more than three. But here we go. Number one, the one thing. I just read a book by that title, and the overall premise was that you need to clear away the distractions and dig deep on the one thing which, once accomplished, will make everything else easier or irrelevant. I think Mark really practices this. Between the early days when he and his buddies were making films to the period where he had racked up credit card debt but just kept burrowing into his craft to the present day where he is committed to watching a film a day, he is nothing if not completely locked in and eternally searching for ways to be better. Number two, follow your bliss. Yes, Joseph Campbell coined that phrase, but Mark seems to have lived it. Again, we go back to those early goofy movies he was making, as he described them, with his buddies. They didn't know what they were doing, but they knew they loved it. And so nothing stopped them from continuing to make them. And when you keep doing something with passion, you keep course correcting and improving your craft along the way. I think every time Mark talked about his confidence as an actor and a filmmaker, he pointed back to those humble beginnings. That was the training ground. And later he talked about his writing and said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I never want to do something that I think I should be doing. If it's not coming, I'll go do the thing that lights me up. So follow your bliss. Number three, I couldn't not include the inscription on his ring that he plans to give his daughter. PWI, passion will inform. Loved his description. It'll either inform you by being there, in which case you'll do whatever it takes, no matter what that is, or the lack of passion will inform you that you're ready to change course. And he likened it not just to career endeavors, but relationships, anything. I just love that. PWI. 
And with that, I'm going to let you go. Again, apologies for me taking up the airwaves with my own stuff. But when a talented actor is throwing you compliments in public, come on, what would you do? As always, thank you for listening. Go check Mark and me, I suppose, out on City on a Hill. Catch up. If you haven't been watching, it's worth the investment of your time. And for more about Mark and his career, check out the links in the show notes. If you feel like you've benefited from this conversation or any other episode, please share it so more people can be impacted. If you leave an iTunes review, it helps the show's visibility and ranking, so we really encourage that if it's not too much trouble. And if you subscribe wherever you listen, you won't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you liked today's conversation with Mark, go check out the links to my past sit-downs with Emmy Award-winning actor Richard Schiff of The West Wing and The Good Doctor, actor and filmmaker Mark Duplass, or actor-producer Eric Christian Olsen. You can also scroll through 10,000knows.com to see which episodes might speak to you. Join us again next Friday for more 10,000 Knows for announcements and promo videos of who's next. You can follow me on social media. Those handles are at Maddie Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. And you can email us at info at 10,000knows.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. And if you do plan to tune in to City on a Hill on Showtime, it is Sundays at 9 p.m. And you can always find it on demand if you're looking to catch up. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. 